You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to turn to Genesis 36 as we continue our, our study of Genesis. I don't know how many are familiar with Genesis 36. Is Genesis 36 anyone's favorite chapter, by the way? I would like to preface this morning by saying a few words about my approach, okay? Because <laughs> you look at this list of names and you think, what do we do with this? And here's the thing, like in your personal reading, if you're reading through Genesis, and you, I mean, what's the natural thing to do when you come to texts like this? You know, you have a temptation to skip over it. But at the very least, when you're reading it, your mind kind of checks out anyway, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's really difficult. Um, you, first of all, your mind is occupied with trying to figure out how to pronounce these words. And while your mind's busy doing that, our minds in many ways are like computers. While you got all this stuff running, <laughs> the other processes, they run pretty slow, don't they? And then you think, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Well... Um, my, you know, here's the thing. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Right? Well, that includes the genealogies, doesn't it? So there is indeed a powerful lesson here. Uh, we just have to discover it. Now, I'm going to do something that I normally do not do. I'm going to read Genesis 36 selectively. And I, I, let, let me explain why. I don't want you to think that there's, this is any way disrespect to Genesis 36. I heard, you know, I listen to tapes. I listen to sermons. When you're in pulpit ministry and you're the guy doing the preaching most of the time, it's very good for you to listen to others preach. Uh, because you need sermons too. And I listened to preachers, and I heard a preacher on a tape, I don't know, maybe six months ago, and he was introducing a very lengthy text to his congregation, and he said something I thought was really unfortunate. He said to his congregation, now, you all be happy to know I'm not going to read the whole thing. And I thought to myself, boy, that's, I, listen, the guy, the guy preaches a pretty good message. I understand he loves the Word, and we all make comments that, are unfortunate from time to time. But I thought to myself, there's a real blooper because said from a pulpit, that says that, okay, lengthy readings are not desirable. I love the Word of God. And I, there's only one reason for you to come here is because you love the Word of God too. And it, it, here's the thing. I, I am going to read selectively this morning uh, because I want to point something out to you about this genealogy that I think will become more visible to you if... I read selectively. And let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. As I was thinking about how to il illustrate this, this approach, I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe two years, three years ago, Tammy and I went down to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. I don't know if any of you have ever been there or not. It's where the Lincoln Memorial is and where all these various... And you can walk around and see all these things for free. If you're looking for something you know, to do for free for a day, that's a great thing to do. And one of the memorials that we looked at was the Vietnam Memorial. And when you walk up to it, 
There's all these names. In fact, I'm told that there's more than 58,000 names on this memorial. Now, you don't have to read all of those names to get the significance of what took place. You, know, you walk up to that and I think to myself, more than 50,000 moms lost their babies. It takes your heart away, doesn't it? Same thing for fathers, siblings. Now, we can read this selectively, and we can still get the gist. And in fact, I think, I mean, we're not going to approach Genesis 36 the way I would approach Romans 8, for example. If we were in Romans 8, I would want to look at every verse. We'd want to look at everything very closely. But I think we're going to see things here, if I read selectively, that we might not have seen because we would have gotten bogged down in so many details. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And then I'll point out the verses after that. Let's begin Genesis 36, verses 1 through 9. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath bore Ruel, and Holabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. Now skip down with me to verse 15. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Now skip down with me to verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Now skip down with me to verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Now skip with me to verse 40. And we'll read to the following to the end of the chapter. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs, Timnah, Alva, Jatheth, Holabama, Elah, Pinan, Canaz, Taman, Mibsar, Magdal, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places and the land of their possession. Let's ask God for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we look to you, O Father, that you would bless us with your voice. We pray, O oh Father, that you would bless us by speaking to us through your word. Pray, Father, that you would bless us by giving us understanding as to what you had in mind as you inspired Moses to write these words. Oh Father, we come before you, and Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word and 
Open your word to our hearts. Teach us. If necessary, rebuke us. Encourage us. Father, train us. Train us in righteousness that we may be equipped, O Father, for every good work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 36. You'll notice, and some of you who've been around for this study, you've seen this phrase, these are degenerations, over and over again, haven't you? And if we were wanting to outline Genesis, this would be a very good way to do it, is to read through, and every time you come to, these are the generations, write it down, and you would actually see an outline of the whole book begins to form. The first time it happens is in Genesis 2 and verse 4, where we read, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And of course, that could be translated, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. It's the account of the creation, if you will. And then the second time it happens is in Genesis 5. These are the generations of Adam. And then we get it again in Genesis 6. These are the generations of Noah. And then there's the flood, right? And then in Genesis 10, we have what we call the table of nations, where these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, who are Shem, Ham, and Japheth? They are the three sons of Noah. They're the three sons that are on the boat. Remember, the Lord destroys everything on the entire earth, save the occupants of the ark. So these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, okay, are the fathers of the planet, aren't they? And thus, Genesis 10, we have the table of nations, the generations, the genealogies, if you will, of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then in chapter 11... God begins to bring this down into focus. And these, we have the genealogy of Shem, who is one of Noah's sons. And the focus is now on the line of Shem. But in that same chapter, we have another genealogy. This is the genealogy of Terah. And you'll recall, Terah is Abraham's father, right? So now, the, the, the focus is going from Shem to Abraham. Now, what's significant about that? Genesis 3.15. Um, if, you, if you weren't here for all of this, you're probably starting to flood already. You're like, wow, you're dumping a truck on me. Don't worry about that. Just hang on to what you can. Uh, hang on to what you can. Uh, but Genesis 3.15, some of us have been around for the whole thing. You know what I'm talking about. Genesis 3.15, the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Son who would be born, who will defeat the devil and restore uh, humanity back to God, right? The genealogies are beginning to focus on Abraham who will be the father, ultimately, of the son, right? And then comes Isaac, and then comes Jacob, right? And then we come to Genesis 36, and here we see these are the generations of who? These are the generations of Esau. Now, who is Esau? Esau is indeed a twin brother of Jacob. Uh, he's never been a central character uh, in any of our discussions, but he's one who keeps coming up, isn't he? Uh, we read of his birth. Uh, he's, like I say, the firstborn of Isaac, twin brother of Jacob. And then we read a story of him coming in out of the fields. And uh, who was Esau? Esau was your rugged outdoorsman, if you will. You know, as I was thinking of a way to describe him, uh, uh, a, uh, 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 an illustration came to my mind that might be meaningful to many of us, but it's the illustration of the Marlboro Man. How many remember the Marlboro Man? Some of you are like, ah, who is the Marlboro Man? But I think 
If you don't know who the Marlboro Man is, you're not missing anything. But once upon a time, you couldn't travel this nation's highways without seeing who? The Marlboro Man. I mean, he was this rugged, cowboy-looking guy, uh, usually leaning on something, and he's about to light up a smoke. And it was was an advertisement for Marlboro cigarettes. He was everywhere. And why did they choose this man, this model? Because he represented something that a lot of the world aspires to, this rugged, strong, outdoorsy type, you know. Uh, This is Esau. This is what Esau is like. He... He, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's your strong, full of life. I have a number of metaphors here for him. Outdoorsman, uh, fun to be around, doesn't think things through very deeply. You know, he's out on the surface, you know. He's always up on the surface, but that's where all the giggling and the laughing is, isn't it? Up on the surface, that's where he's at. He's all about his hobbies. Everything is about sports, hunting, fishing. He's probably not going to be around on Sunday. You really don't expect him because he's going to be out tending to his hobbies. His hobbies are what's important to him, not the worship of the Lord. Nothing is sacred to Esau. Why would I say all this stuff about Esau? Because that's how he's described, and that's what we gather from the stories of Esau. Esau comes in out of the field. The first story we have of him, he comes in out of the field, and he's starving, he's hungry. And his brother Jacob, who's a conniver, he's cooking this stew. And he says to his brother Jacob, give me some of that stew. I'm famished over here. I'm hungry. And Jacob, selfish, ambitious, says, well, give me your birthright. Sell me your birthright. Now, what's that mean? Well, Esau is actually the firstborn of Isaac. Do you realize the privilege that Esau has of being the firstborn of Isaac, born in the covenant of God, born in this family, firstborn of Isaac? He disregards his birthright. He says, what good is my birthright? When I'm starving. And he says, go ahead, take my birthright for a bowl, stool, bowl a stew. So there we see him disregarding the covenant, if you will. And the next story we have of him is him marrying Canaanite women. In fact, that's in our text here in verse 2. But before we get to that, notice there's a little, notice the parentheses. Most of your translations probably have parentheses, and they'll say generations of Esau, parentheses, that is Edom. Parenthesis closed. Some of our Bible translations will differ a little bit. But I want to point out something to you. Look at the end of verse 8. It says Esau is Edom. And if you look at uh, verse 19, these are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. If you look at 43, the very last verse, that is Esau, the father of Edom. I think the Holy Spirit's trying to get our attention about something. When you're trying to figure out a passage, look for things like this that are repeated. Esau is Edom. Um, That'll come up here in a couple minutes. But in the meantime, verse 2, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Now, what's wrong with that? He's marrying outside of the covenant. He's marrying these women who serve other gods, who believe in other gods. To what effect is that going to have? It's going to lead him further and further away from covenant life. It's going to lead him further and further away from uh, the worship of the Lord. So here we, he gets rid of his birthright, kind of discards the covenant. Then he, he, in open rebellion against God, marries outside of the covenant. He serves these children to these Canaanite wives. And then in verse 6, he takes his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan, 
And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. Now, what's significant about that is that the land of Canaan is the land of promise, isn't it? The land of Canaan is the land of promise. And what is that? What is the promised land? What's all about this promised land? All, what's all about the promised land is it's a type of heaven. It's meant to prepare people, the Old Testament economy, it's meant to prepare people for heaven. The promised land is a type, a shadow, if you will, of heaven. Here, Esau is scrambling out of there. He's scrambling out. Verse 7 is the, the excuse for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Kind of reminds me of uh, Abraham and Lot, incidentally. The one point, the land wouldn't support them. And Abraham stays in the land of promise, but where does Lot go? He goes down to Sodom, camps before the city. Next thing you know, he's in the city, right? That's what will happen. You know, I, I read these verses in verse 6, and and I realize this is a little bit simplistic, but uh, it's still a good application, I think. Okay, the land wouldn't support them, so they have to split. Here's another suggestion. Get rid of some of your stuff. Let's think about that for a minute. I can't be in church because I got to tend to this. I got to tend to this. I gotta, well, get rid of it. If it's keeping you from the Lord's day, get rid of it. Sometimes it's not that simple. Sometimes we work for an employer. We have to have the job and we're, we have to work on Sunday. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we, we're pushing ourselves to gain so much that we, we, we say to ourselves, you know what, we're just going to have to set worship aside. No, don't do that. I'll say more about that here in a few minutes. Look at verse 8. Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay, so Esau settles down in this land that's outside of the promised land. It's outside of the land of promise. It's outside of the type of heaven. In other words, he's settling down in the world. Instead of settling down in that which is heavenly, he's settling down into that which is worldly. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to see something here. Uh, in verse 9, these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. You see that? So Esau is the father of who? The Edomites. Esau is Edom. He's the father of the Edomites. Verse 15, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Now, what's significant about that? What's significant about that is Esau starts having kids, and they start having kids, and these kids... They, they start becoming powerful, and they become so powerful that his family becomes tribes, and the tribes become so powerful, they become chieftain tribes. So Esau is, you know, it's like, a, it's like you know, the snowball on the top of the hill. As it rolls, it gathers and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Esau is really gathering some steam here. That's what's significant about verse 15. These are the chiefs. Okay, we've just told you about a bunch of the kids, but here are the chiefs of these tribes. Now look at verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Inhabitants of what land? The ha the, the, that's those who are inhabiting Seir before Esau gets there. Now Esau, when he goes down into Seir, it's not like he walks into this, this land and there's nobody living there. There are people living there. And Esau goes in and his people begin to intermarry with them. 
Uh, but after a little while, he saw, he begins to think, you know what, I think I'd like to have this place to myself. And what does he do? He ends up taking the whole place over. He ends up conquering them. And Seir becomes Adam. Now, as you read through the Bible, you read through the rest of the Bible, you'll see that those two terms used interchangeably. Sometimes it'll say Seir. Sometimes it'll say Edom, which is a reminder to the reader of this text. It's a reminder of this genealogy. It's a reminder of the history. This used to be Seir. Oh, Esau. Yeah, Esau. Esau's the one that went down and he conquered all those people. Now, if you skip down to verse 31, look what you read there. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Now we have kings. Esau has kids. Then he has chiefs. Now he has kings. We bumped into one of the neighbors maybe who knew these boys growing up. They might have said, you know, boy, uh, you talking about... Some, Talking about Isaac, you talking about Isaac? Well, Isaac, he's the father of those two boys. Uh, uh, Esau, yeah, Esau, and uh, what's the other kid's name? We haven't seen him in years. Jake, yeah, Jacob, Jacob. Boy, that Esau, I'll tell you what. He went down to Seir, man. He's, boy, I'll tell you what, Esau is mighty. Completely took over the place. In fact, they're calling it Edom now instead of Seir. I think he practically owns that place. You see what's happening? Kings are coming out of him. Kings are coming out of Esau before kings come out of Jacob or out of Israel. Now, what's, 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 what's the point of this? Where, where am I headed with this? Where is the text leading us? I have two points, just two points this morning. They're homiletically charged points, but they're just two points. And the first point is this, appearances, in which, by the way, the title of the message is appearances. Appearances are everything to worldly eyes. Appearances are everything to worldly eyes. Let's think that through for a minute. Let's, let's go back to the history of Esau and think that through a little bit, you know. Here Esau is. He's coming out of the field and he's hungry. And there's that stew. And that stew appears to be the answer to his problems. That stew appears to be so important to him that he's willing to disregard his birthright for it. Let's move on. Here's Esau again. He happens to notice these Canaanite ladies. Now, come on. What do you suppose they look like? Really? Come on. I think I could hazard a guess. They probably walked a certain way. They probably talked a certain way. They probably looked a certain way. They were probably shaped a certain way. Why else would he do that? Why else would he take them as his wife? Because they appeared attractive. I think that's almost a no-brainer, isn't it? So he disregards the covenant for what appears to be something better, right? Isn't that what he does? And what is he doing in verse 6 and 
through verse 8 of our text here, it appears that the best thing to do is to take all of our stuff and go down to Seir. That is what appears to be the best thing to do, isn't it? Appearances are everything to worldly eyes. Um, That's why the world has such a grip on us, isn't it? Because appearances are everything. It appears to be, it appears to us that our happiness could be found in this stuff, whatever this stuff is, or this accomplishment, whatever that accomplishment is, or uh, this achievement, whatever that uh, achievement is. It appears to us that that's the best way for us to go, or we wouldn't go that way. So the first point is appearances are everything to worldly eyes, but the second point is not everything is as it appears, is it? Not everything is as it appears. That's one of Satan's favorite devices, I think, is to appeal to worldly eyes and try to dupe us into trading off eternal salvation for the things, passing things of this world. That's why I chose Psalm 73. You know, if you, if you keep your, if you keep your, uh, your place in, in Genesis 36, we're going to come back to it. But if you go to Psalm 73 for a moment, and I think we got the gist of Psalm 73. It's why I was selective with our reading, because in reading Psalm 73 that way, you kind of get, you kind of get the gist of what the whole psalm is about. But... Um, Really, what, what the psalmist is doing is he's noticing that the wicked are prospering. He's noticing that the wicked are living these arrogant people. They're getting rich. They're getting wealthy. They have no regard for God. They have no regard for the covenants. They have no regard for church. They're just out making money. They're successful. They're gaining all this stuff. They're the guys that have the fancy boats and the fancy truck, pulling the fancy boats. They got the camper. They've got all of this stuff. Um, everything appears to be going wonderful. And the psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious of them until I went into the sanctuary of God, verse 17. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, verse 18. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You know, um, back, to, back to Genesis 36, I want to show you something. It's in verse 43 at the very end. It's easy to miss, actually. Notice that it says there in verse 43, Genesis 36, last verse, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their what? Dwelling places in the land of their what? Possession. You see that word possession? I was focusing on that word earlier this week, possession, and it made me think of Psalm 17 and verse 14. That read, I mean, it, it reads, men of, there's a little phrase in it that reads this way, men of the world whose portion is in this life. What, was, what I was really recalling was the idea that worldly men have their portion in this life. They have their portion here and now in this life. That's what I started thinking about. And I thought, you know, I'd like to elaborate on that. And I, 
This is one of my go-to books when I want to elaborate on the Psalms. This right here is entitled The Treasury of David. It's uh, volume two, or it's volume one. And it's a commentary that Charles Spurgeon wrote. And um, he has a place in this commentary called Quaint Sayings. And in that place, he has all these quotations from all of these sermons that he read during his research. And I knew we would find some gems on this verse if we turn to this volume. And I found one that I want to share with you that I think is just such a game changer. It's by a man named Jeremiah Burroughs. He's writing at the end of the 17th century, 1600s, uh, early 1700s. And he's commenting on verse 14 of Psalm 17, namely, men which have their portion in this life. Okay, you follow that? Men who have their portion in this life. Men who turn their back on God to chase the things of the world and get rich and have all this stuff. You don't even have to get rich. Just turn your back on the world. You can only have one thing. But those who choose that one thing, those who choose these things instead of God, this is what Jeremiah Burroughs says. And he's not the only one that says it. I've, I've, I've read it, and there was a lot of guys saying this uh, in that day. But he says this, God gives wicked men a portion here to show unto them what little good there is in all of these things and to show the world what little good there is in all of the things that are here below in the world. Okay? What's the argument? God is giving these folks this stuff, not to show how valuable it is, but to show how unvaluable it is. Follow it? He goes on, certainly, if they were much good... They should never have them. It is an argument that there is no great excellency in the strength of body. So if you aspire to be the strongest guy in the world, listen to this. It is no argument that there's there is it is an argument that there's no great excellency in the strength of a body, for an ox has more of it than you. Uh oh. An argument that there is no great excellency in the agility of body, for a dog hath it more than you. An argument, no great excellency in, in, in the word he uses is gay. It doesn't mean what it means today. It meant fancy in this time. He says, an argument, no great excellency in fancy clothes, for a peacock hath it more than you. An argument that there is not any great excellency in gold and silver for Indians that know not God have them more than you. And if these things had any great worth in them, certainly God would never give them to wicked men. That's an absolute game changer, isn't it? I mean, I, I read that and I thought... <laughs> Oh, man, i got to share this. I can't fold this book back up and put it on the shelf. i got to share this one. And as I looked up, there were others saying that. It's like something that's almost been forgotten back in these old tomes, you know. And that old question, why do the wicked prosper like this? They're not prospering. You see, we've got the same disease. If we're, if, we're, if we're looking at the wicked and we're saying, look at them, look how good they look, look, they got all this stuff. Well, what does that prove to say? What is that saying about us? It says we have the same disease because we're, we're, we're assigning the same value to this crap that they are, aren't we? Otherwise, we'd never say that. Appearances. 
are not what they appear to be. Or I should say appearances are not always what they appear to be. Let's think about Let's think about our genealogy. The effect of this genealogy is to be this. When you read this genealogy, the effect of it is to be like, whoa, look at this. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you go back to Genesis 35 and you look at the last sentence of verse 22 and verse 23, 24, 25, and 26, you get a genealogy. It's a genealogy of Jacob. It says, now the sons of Jacob were 12. And then you have verse 23, 24, 25, and 26. There's 12 sons. Okay, there's Jacob's genealogy. <laughs> context, 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 right? You got Esau's genealogy, which is huge. Uh, scholars, I, I heard someone say there's more than 80 names. I didn't count the names in Genesis 36. I'll take their word for it. It'd be tedious to count them. Some of them repeated over again. Okay, there's more than 80 names. Jacob's genealogy is this little dinky thing. Doesn't it appear that, doesn't it appear that, that Isaac is stealing, or Esau is stealing the show here? Doesn't it look that way? Doesn't it have the appearance of that? That's the effect I think it's to have. You read this little genealogy, and then you get to Genesis 36. In fact, let's think about it. What has Jacob been doing while Esau is having all these kids who are having kids, who are creating clans and having tri chieftains? And what, what's Jacob been doing? He's been up at his uncle Laban's place working 14 years for Rachel's hand in marriage. Where would you rather be? Well, the world would say, I'd definitely rather be with Esau. But God is doing so much transforming work in Jacob. Well, he's up there struggling under Laban's hand, isn't he? In fact, Jacob comes back from Laban's a new man, a different man. Esau hasn't changed. At least it doesn't appear that he's changed. I know, the preacher's long-winded this morning. I'm sorry. He hasn't changed. Do you, do you see the effect? But, but let's put this in perspective. It appears that Esau has this towering genealogy over Jacob. But let's put it in perspective. How many chapters are devoted to Esau? He's got one. Esau is a one-chapter wonder. Right? How many chapters have been devoted to Jacob? I didn't count them, but we've been studying Jacob for weeks, haven't we? And in fact, if you took the approach that many people take and you say, okay, we're going to do a study in the life of Abraham, then we're going to do a study in the life of Jacob, then we're going to do a study in the life of Joseph, you can skip chapter 36 because that's a study in the life of Esau. He has one chapter. Now let's think this through again. Is there anybody famous who comes out of Esau? There are a number of famous people who come out of Esau. What becomes of Esau? Esau is Edom. What becomes of Edom? Ezekiel says in chapter 35 that Edom will come to nothing. And it happens. I don't know when, maybe around 400, 300 BC, it's pretty much conquered by the Nabataeans. And somewhere in there, its name is changed from Edom to Edomia. Does that mean anything to you? Edomia. The New Testament reader will recall the name Edomia because there is a famous couple of guys that come from Edomia. Who are they? One of them is named Herod the Great. And he is that monster who, upon hearing about Jesus being born king of the Jews, 
He tries to find. He says, the Magi come into town. They come into Jerusalem. They say, we were here to see who's, who's, we were here to see he who's been born king of the Jews. And, and Herod, the Idumean, says, what king? He doesn't know. He gets all nervous and everything. And he tells the Magi, well, when you find him, let me know where he is so that I can come and worship. Well, he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to kill him. The Magi are warned in a dream. They return back to their home. Herod's duped. He doesn't know where he is. So what does he do? He figures out, well, he'd be about this age. Kill all of the baby boys that are about that age and orders the mass slaughter of these kids. It's from Edom. There's another one, Herod Antipater. He beheads John the Baptist. How about Jacob? Is there anybody famous in Jacob's line? That's right, Ainsley. That's spot on. His name's Jesus. Does Jesus get one chapter? <laughs> How many chapters does Jesus get? Listen, loved ones. You want to know how many chapters Jesus gets? He gets the whole book. This whole book is about him, including Genesis 36. Esau, here's something you need to understand. Esau is not the star even of Genesis 36. Esau is not the star even of Genesis 36. Now, what do we do with all of this? What does this teach us? What does this teach us about God? I mean, what, what are we learning about God? Notice how good God is to Esau. What's it got to do with us? Well, here we see, like, just look out and, and look. I mean, people who, you know, you can go to any town. And, and in our culture, you can go to many towns. And there's all kinds of people who who don't want anything to do with Jesus, yet they have houses and they have cars and they have kids and they have, they have, they have, they've got livelihoods. They've, God is seeing to it that they're taken care of for a period of time, isn't he? In theology, we call this common grace. It's called common grace. Common meaning it's distinguished from saving grace. It's common grace in that God gives it to, he really, he's, he's just, God, God is, is, is just wonderfully gracious like this, and he just gives, he gives all this nice stuff. There's unbelievers who hold children, just like Laura's holding Linus there. And, and the love that, that Laura has for Linus, he, he gives those, those, those women love for their children and love from the children. To them. He gives all these things to people who, who ultimately have never anything to do with them. That's common grace. But our God is just, and one of these days, one of these days, that comes to an end. Now, what is, what is that for us? What is that for us? Who God, God has opened up our hearts so we can see God and we can love him. What does that mean for us? It means this. If God is this good, if he is this good to even his enemies, how much better will he be to us whom he has made his friends? I'll leave you one, one last thing, diagnostic question. I'm a troubleshooter. I like diagnostic questions. I like to diagnose stuff. Here's a diagnostic question. Am I caught up in appearances? 
I've been asking myself that question, and I invite you to join me and you each ask yourselves this question. The title of this message is Appearances. We see that worldly eyes are drawn to appearances. In fact, appearances are everything to worldly eyes, but everything's not always as it appears to be, is it? Let's ask ourselves this question. Am I caught up in appearances? And someone would say, well, wait a second, how do I do that? How do I, how do I answer a question if I'm, how do I answer that? I don't really know how to answer that. Well, you answer that with another question. If you want to know if you're caught up in appearances, then you have to ask yourself another question. And that question is this. Do you value Jesus? Because it's impossible to simultaneously value this world and value Jesus at the same time. It's a seesaw. The more you value this world, the less you will value Jesus. This genealogy of Genesis 36 is proof in the pudding. It's a long list of people who have no regard for God or his covenants or his promises. They're chasing the, the world. The world is up here. When the seesaw is up here on one side, where is it at on the other? It's down here. The more that you love Jesus and the more love that Jesus puts into your heart, the more that seesaw begins to go the other way. And when Jesus gets all the way up here, where's that seesaw on the other side now? It's on the ground. It's not that we can't enjoy things that God gives us. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, how much do you value Jesus? And ask yourself, be brutally honest with them. How much do I value Jesus? Is there other things that I value more than Jesus? And how you answer that question is going to give you some percentage of how much you're caught up in appearances. But what do we see from our text? Flee from these appearances. Amen. Heavenly Father, we so very thank you for this genealogy, this list of names that we can hardly pronounce. For you in it, you teach us so much. And we have a picture that I don't think we can ever forget. I pray we never forget the picture that we have seen this morning. A picture of more than 80 names of this nation being all that a nation really can, of one man going and conquering a whole people group and becoming a nation, becoming chiefs, kings, lasting for many, many generations and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but eventually comes to nothing. And it begins by not valuing the covenant, not valuing the promises of God, and ultimately not even valuing heaven. Well, Father, work in our hearts that we would value the things of God, that we would value Jesus. Increase our value of Christ Jesus by revealing him more and more fully to us, that we would see him in his beauty and his splendor and his glory and his majesty, his holiness, his justice, even his wrath, that we would see a complete and full Jesus. And as we do this, we will increase in 
the way we value Jesus until we see Jesus as the pearl of great price who's worth more, worth so much that we're willing to sell all that we have that we could have Jesus. Oh, Lord, work this in our hearts. Work this in the hearts of all who come to Tri-State Community Church. And Father, beyond, work this in the hearts of our brothers and sisters everywhere they can be found, O oh Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.